I'm going to share first. A lot of times we use uh, worship softens our heart, prepares us for the word. Today we're going to use the word to prepare us for worship. Um, as you uh, we get into the passage, I think you'll see why we're doing that. I do have a few announcements to make. Um, you're sitting on this sheet of paper that is some leader, some service opportunities for the fall. Over the next couple of weeks, I want you all to pray about these things and see where you fit. One side it says leading and the other side says serving. One is not better than the other. Uh, to, to serve, you have to be here for five minutes. To lead, you've got to be here for six months. And so that's the difference between those two, uh, the, the two sides of that sheet of paper. It's just how long you need to be in the church before uh, you can move into those roles. You can see we've got some small group leader um, opportunities for adults and children. And then on those serving positions, there's lots of different things um, with our children and with our adults. What I would encourage you to do is think about what you like to do, what you're gifted to do, what we need you to do, and where those things intersect, then say yes. Don't say, what do I have time to do, because the answer is nothing. The answer is, what are you going to make time to do? That's the question you need to be asking. So look at these things. Look at them prayerfully. We don't do formal membership at Stonebridge. You may or may not be aware of that. There's no... You don't have a letter with us or anything like that. We don't have a formal membership process. We try to work a little bit more on a family structure. And the way we know that you say, hey, Stonebridge is my church, I'm a part of this family, is if you give, there'll be a bucket that goes around in a minute. If you're in a small group and if you're serving, those are the things that we look for that say, hey, I'm a part of this family and and I want this to be my home. So just next couple of weeks, you can look at these things. You can contact Kim. Her email's at the top of the sheet, and she can direct you to the appropriate people if she's not able uh, to answer your question herself. So you can either sign up with her, or you can ask her for some more information if that's what you need. So we'll be talking about those things over the next couple of weeks, but just wanted to give you a heads up. All right, we're going to look at Luke 9 today. Last week, we looked at this crucial question, who is Jesus? More specifically, who is Jesus to me? We said that's the most important question any of us will ever answer. Not a, it's not an informational answer, who is Jesus, but very personal and relational, who is Jesus to us. Peter answers this question. Jesus poses it to the disciples. And Peter says, you're the Messiah. That's the right answer. You're the Christ. You're the one sent by God who's going to make everything right. And then Jesus immediately in Luke 9 defines what he means by Messiah. We said earlier uh, last week that the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. And so when I say Jesus, something comes into your head. You get a picture, you have a a list of words. That picture, that list of words goes a long way in determining how you're going to live your life. And our tendency as humans, just how how we're wired, is to fill in the blanks ourselves. We can't physically see Jesus. We don't hear him with our ears. And so it's easy for us to begin to craft him into our own image. And so what Jesus does immediately, as soon as Peter says, you're the Messiah, is Jesus says, let me tell you what I mean by that. You're thinking I'm going to be a conquering king. That's not the case. Or that is the case, but it's not going to, I'm not going to conquer the way you think I am. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. He redefines what it means to be Messiah. And we said for us, we want to make sure we're giving him space, particularly as we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books of the Bible, to define himself to us versus us defining him. And then Jesus goes on to define what it means to be a follower of his, to be a disciple. He says you're going to deny yourself. That is, you're going to say no to things that get in the way. There's things that are kind of in this forbidden category, and there are things that are in this 
category, that every imperative category, but it's relatively few. There are relatively few things that Jesus says everybody is going to do, and there's relatively few things that Jesus says nobody can do. Most of life is lived in this more gray area where we need to listen to the Lord and follow him. And so he says you've got to deny yourself that anything in that gray area that's going to get in the way, you've got to be willing to say no to that. Ultimately, you've got to recognize that your life is lived for my sake, not for your own, even to the point of death. You're going to take up your cross daily. That's how far you take this issue of self-denial. It's not reasonable. It's not measured. It's extreme. All the way to the point of death, you take this self-denial. We said we don't live in a society where that's going to be asked of us, but nevertheless, that is what Jesus says. And then we have to follow him, that is, allow him to lead. He's in charge. He's in control. And our responsibility is to respond. So that's what we looked at last week. Jesus was revealed as the Messiah. Today we're going to look at Jesus revealed as the Son. So I'm going to start in verse 27, picking up one verse from last week. And then we'll look at this next story. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said that, he took Peter, John, and James with him and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they, but, excuse me, but when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, so as Moses and Elijah were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered the disciples and Jesus, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So I see that story. It's called the Transfiguration. I see that story as a fulfillment of verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples, to these 12 guys, some of you are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Then eight days later, he takes some of them, Peter, James, and John, up on top of this mountain. It's Mount Hermon. It's the highest peak in that area, about 9,000 feet above sea level. He takes them up on top of that mountain. And as he's praying, he's changed. Mark and Matthew actually use the word uh, transfigured or metamorphosed. He, he's transformed or changed from the inside out. It's not just that his clothes get whiter. He actually looks different. Peter, James, and John are tired. They've walked up that mountain. It's a long hike, arduous hike. They're sleepy. But they see Moses and Elijah, the two of the all-time greats. Moses, who had delivered the Jews from Egyptian captivity, or excuse me, the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. Elijah, the first of the great prophets. They're there talking with Jesus about his death. Uh, the, the words that says departure, his exodus. They're not telling Jesus what's going to happen. They're not filling him in on the future. We know from last week, Jesus already knows he's going to die. That's not news to him. I'm not exactly certain what they're talking about, but it says about his departure. So they're having this conversation and Moses and Elijah are about to leave again. I don't, they're walking down the mountain or walking up a ladder to heaven or however they're leaving. That's what they're doing. And Peter says, hold on. This is good. Like We like this. This is better than the suffering and dying things. This is what we were thinking about when we said 
You are the Messiah. So let's just stay here. Let me build a shelter for each one of y'all. That way y'all can hang out. We can be with y'all, maybe worship you. That's his response. The Bible says he doesn't know what he's saying. We know probably better not to say anything if you're not exactly certain what you should be saying. And this cloud envelops them. The cloud is God. It's the Father. Moses and Elijah are gone. And out of this cloud, Peter and James and John hear with their ears. This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. That's a whole new category for them at this point. It's the key statement in this story. And it's a piece of information. It's a piece of revelation. That they, they, it, for us, it's cliche to say Jesus is the son of God. For them, they're going, we don't have a box to put this in. What's going on on this mountain, it's a, it's a revelation, it's a disclosure of who Jesus really is. You may not know this, but one of the core uh, doctrines of the Christian faith it's a, is a mystery. is that Jesus is one man with two natures. He's fully God and he's fully human. He's 100% God and 100% human at the same time. And somehow in Jesus, 100 plus 100 equals 100, not 200, because he's only one person. But he has these, both of these natures. And what we see of him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see his humanity on display almost all the time. Jesus goes up on this mountain and he kind of peels back his humanity for a handful of minutes so they can see who he really is. It's not, it's not an external change. It's internal. It's, coming, it's, it's who he is revealed. Again, he's kind of opening up his chest a little bit so they can see the divinity that's always been there. And so for them, they've known Jesus as a teacher. They've known Jesus as a healer. They've known Jesus as a miracle-working prophet. They, they know Jesus as the Messiah. All of those figures are humans, empowered by God, absolutely. But they're all humans. Even the Messiah, the Jews believed, was, was going to be a human who is empowered by God to execute certain functions. Never in their mind did they think the Messiah was going to be divine. And Jesus, in revealing himself, says, this is who I really am. And again, I think that's one of the reasons they don't say anything. Because people will stone them for blasphemy. What do you mean he's God? There's only one God. He can't be God as well. We know where God dwells and is not here among us. It doesn't fit. And so they keep their mouth shut for a while. I think because, one, they're intimidated. Two, they don't have a category to put this revelation in. Three, I, there's some fear there. What are, not just that people are going to think they're crazy, but that people are going to think they're heretical and may kill them. And so they keep this to themselves. It's an incredible moment. I don't know how long it lasts, but it's this incredible revelation, this brief self-disclosure where Jesus says, this is who I really am. Uh, Peter... His heart's right. Execution is poor. His heart's right. We need to worship. Yes, absolutely. You just need to worship one of them, not all three of them. And that's what Moses and Elijah being gone in this word, this is my son. Again, that's a different category. It's the father saying he's not like them. Moses is a stud. He's one of the greatest of all time. Same with Elijah. One of the greatest of all time. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses led the people out of slavery. Moses, it was through him that the law was given. Top three guys in, in the history of Israel. Elijah, one of the, he's the first of the great prophets. Worked at least eight miracles during the course of his ministry. Doesn't die. How about that? Translated straight to heaven. Whatever in the world that looks like. On a chariot. That, I mean, that's him. Again, Top three guys. 
How, however you're going to rate them. Maybe you don't like rating people. However you want to rate them. He's in the top three. And they're not in the same category as Jesus. It's not Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It's Jesus. And then there's a big break. And then there's everybody else. He's a son. The only son. That's what it means, only begotten. He's it. He's the only one. He's the category by himself. And listen to him. Moses gave you the law. Elijah represents the prophets. That is the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament can be divided into the law and the prophets. And what the father says is that's all wonderful, but you listen to him. You listen to what he's got to say. What he says fulfills and in some way supersedes what these guys have said as wonderful and inspired as it is. His words are of a different caliber altogether. So for us, the reason I wanted to share first um, was I wanted us to, I think, the only uh, response to that type of revelation is worship. I don't know what else you do. And again, I think Peter's execution was horrible, but his heart was right. He, he, the impulse was there. We, this is good. Yes, this is good. We can't stay here. There's work to be done. We can't hang out on the mountain. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem. He has to suffer. He has to die, and then he'll be resurrected. We can't hang out, hang out on the mountain. But again, Peter's impulse is correct. And so what I want us to do, Bo and the worship team are going to come back. There's some more I'm going to share. I'm going to share another story on the back end of our time in worship. But for this, as we read about the transfiguration, again, the only proper response, I think, is to worship God. For us, cliche that Jesus is the Son of God. It's revelation for Peter and James and John. And I'm going to pray for us, you can close your eyes, that it would be revelation for us again. Some of you, you've heard that a thousand times. Jesus, the Son of God. I'm going to pray that that would be fresh and new for us and that we would respond to him accordingly. I think the reason Jesus took those guys up on a mountain then is kind of like, why would he do that? He has three years with them. He never does anything like this before or after. Everything else that we see him do, he does in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is available to and lives in those of us who are following Jesus. This is different. None of us can go up on a mountain and peel back like that. Why would he do that? I think he wanted Peter and James and John, and then ultimately Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means us, to know who died. God set the terms of the deal. He said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I think Jesus wanted to know before he got to Jerusalem, which is coming fast, before he's betrayed, before he's arrested, before he's mocked and beaten and tortured and killed. He wants them to know it's not just this great guy who was sent by God. It's not just a really holy man or a really, really powerful man who was sent by God to do that. It was God himself fulfilling the terms of the covenant that he created. It was God himself as a substitute for us. And I think Jesus wanted them to get a glimpse before Jerusalem of who it was who'd be carrying the cross. 
again, not just a great man, not just a holy man, but the God man. Reconciling the world to himself through his death and his resurrection. So God, I pray as we worship, for some of us, this is old hat. We know this, we've heard this. I pray for a freshness in our hearts this morning as we worship, that we would recognize this incredible love that you've shown in sending your son to live and to die and to be raised to life so that we can boldly and confidently enter into your presence, that we don't have to be afraid now that we're going to get struck down because of our guilt or our unrighteousness. With confidence, we can come before you because the blood of your son covers all of our sin and all of our iniquity. God, I pray for those who, this is new, they're figuring it out. God, I pray that these few minutes of worship for them would be deep and rich and you would reveal some element, some aspect of your character that they they haven't known before. Again, for those who have, this is, uh, they, they have years, decades even, in. Would there be something fresh and new for them? In these few minutes as well, God, we want to step outside of our own preferences. We want to even in some ways step outside of our personalities. And we want to worship you as the son of God. We want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you're due. And we're asking, opening ourselves up, ourselves up to say, how do you want to reveal yourselves to us this morning? We know you as the lamb. Do we need to know you as the lion? We know you're you're the author. Do we need to see you as the perfecter? We know you're the cornerstone. Do we need to see you as the capstone? We know you as a priest. Do we need to see you as a king? We know you're a shepherd. Do we need to see you as a healer? What is it this morning, Jesus? We want to open ourselves up. So come, I pray, by your spirit. Fill this room and fill our hearts. And I pray that our worship to you would bring you glory and honor. Y'all can stand. Good. Two things on worship and then we'll travel down the mountain to the valley. That's what's next in Luke. Uh, Worship is an atmosphere changer. If there's a spot, I'm thinking physically, there's a space. You're saying, this is not good. Try to figure out what it would look like to worship in that space, that you're inviting the Lord in. You don't have to sing out loud. There's some things that you can do in your heart. Bo will be happy to help you with that. If you're thinking through your day, kind of just the patterns of your day, if there's a spot that seems just not good, and you're, the Lord needs to be introduced, I'd encourage you to talk with Bo about what it looks like to worship there. It's one of the best things I ever did was learn how to worship uh, on my own. If you've ever sat around me, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I sure do think I sound good. I'm tone deaf, so I don't know I sound bad. Y'all know I sound bad. But I don't. And, uh, but one of the best things I learned to do was how to worship on my own outside of a corporate setting. And I would encourage you to try to develop that as well. And it doesn't matter if you're a good singer and it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's a, it's a, um, it's a gift the Lord has given us to invite him in uh, to different places. And the second thing I would say is if that yelling thing was hard for you, it's like, man, that is, that is not me. What I want, I want to thank you for participating. For people who are, that's their deal, that's great. But for those of us who that's a stretch to shout, 
It's a sacrifice. And the Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. David says, I'm not going to give God an offering that doesn't cost me anything. If that was costly for you to raise your voice, then I want you to be affirmed and encouraged. Like, that's powerful that you were willing to do that. And God heard. He could pick out the voices. And he, and he responds to that. He responds to the fact that you were willing to say, this is outside of my comfort zone. This is a stretch for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a sacrifice for you to do that, and God will honor that in your life. Okay, so then we travel down. Verse 37, the next day we're up here. Jesus, Peter, James, John, the Father, this incredible moment. The next day when that crowd, that group of four... When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You remember, Jesus just recently has given these guys all authority and all power to drive out demons. And they've done that. They went on that first ever mission trip, and they were successful. Like, they saw stuff happen, and Jesus wasn't with them. Exact same scenario. Jesus is not physically with them. There's someone who has um, an issue with demons, and they've, they've been successful. This is not new territory for them. You unbelieving and perverse generation, I think Jesus is directing that at his non-disciples. I don't believe he's directing it at this man. We don't see him interact with people that way. Who are approaching him for help. You unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So as I was reading, I wanted to do these two stories together. They're, they're meant to be read together. You could see the time. One happened the day after the other. But when I was thinking about it, the thing I couldn't get around was this idea of Jesus taking three and leaving nine. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he leaves the other nine down at the base of the mountain. And at, for, for Peter, James, and John, I would say they had the best day of their life. The first Easter may eventually trump this for them when they see Jesus raised from the dead. I don't know that it would, maybe, but that's it. So at worst, this is this going to be the second best day. Of their life. That's what they had on the mountain. That's an unbelievable experience. Can you imagine being in a cloud, the presence of God, like physically you can see, you're hearing with your ears. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God. Somehow Moses and Elijah are there and you know who they are. And there's a, Can you imagine that? And they come down the mountain and I think the nine are having about the worst day they've ever had, at least in the time they've spent with Jesus. Mark tells us that there's some teachers of the law who are arguing with the disciples, so you've got that action going on. You have this boy who needs to be helped. You're frustrated. You may even be a bit embarrassed and humiliated that you're not, it's not working. Like whatever, whatever you're doing is not, it's not getting the job done. You've seen fruit in the past. You're probably trying, you're probably going back and saying, what did I do last time? What, how did I say the words? And you're probably trying to figure out. Why isn't it working this time? How come I'm not able to help this boy? The father is desperate. The crowds are, who knows if the crowds are starting to kind of pick at you and poke at you and make fun of you. Who knows if they're just 
restless, and then Jesus comes down, and you can tell, like you've been around people who are coming off a great experience, you can kind of tell. And they come down, and you're here, and you're wiped out, again, probably frustrated. You're probably a bit jealous. We know we'll see this next week. As soon as this is over, the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. And so the, the, the guys, these nine, they're not in great shape. And then Jesus publicly rebukes them. He calls them unbelieving. He says, y'all are he calls this perverse generation, this twisted generation. So you get this public rebuke from Jesus. You're humiliated because you're not able to help this boy. You're upset because you weren't one of the ones who was picked to go on top of the mountain. All of those things are swirling around. And so the thing I've been thinking about for a week is what's it feel like to be a part, to be one of the nine? Like, how does that feel? And there may be some of you who feel that way this morning. You know you're on the team. You know you're in the family. You know God loves you. But if you're honest, you feel like the guy that gets left at the base of the mountain much more so than the guy that gets called up to the top. We talked last week about this idea of following Jesus and how personal and individual that is. And that's why we focus so heavily here at Stonebridge on the importance of hearing the voice of God and being led by the Spirit because there's so many things that are in this gray area. There's a few things that are no-goes for everybody and there are a few things that are absolutely yeses for everybody. And then so much of life, though, is lived in between those two poles. If you read through the Bible, it's not going to tell you who to marry. It's not going to tell you where to live. It's not going to tell you what to do for a living. It's not going to tell you where to put your kids in school. It's not going to tell you what to do, how much of your money you should save. Or get. It's, not going to, it's, it's not in there. You've got to hear the Lord on all of those things. And again, that's why we focus so heavily on the importance of developing a heart that's sensitive to how God speaks to you. I don't know how you can do life successfully Otherwise, the Bible is a revelation of who God is and how he deals with us. And one of the things the Bible says is the way God deals with us is personally and relationally. He speaks to us. John 10. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. Galatians 5. Be led by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. So that's, again, that's why we do that. We talked last week about because following is so personal and individual, it's easy for us to be tempted to look to the left or the right. So in Hebrews, there's this picture of running a race. In Hebrews 12, I'm going to run the race that's marked out for me. And it's easy for me at times to look at the race marked out for Brian and say, I kind of like his lane better than my lane. So maybe I can just slip over for a little bit in whatever area of my life that is. And I don't know if you feel that way, but I was on this mission trip this year, this past week. I went to Lexington as kind of a pseudo chaperone with fourth and fifth graders. I wasn't. For whatever reason, I hadn't put together that they were fourth and fifth graders who were going on the trip. And I have a fourth grader, so I kind of know what they're like. I don't think I knew what they were like in a pack. So that was a bit overwhelming for me. Uh, But it was good. So we went and we spent some time with these missionaries. Side note, if you have an elementary school child with us and you don't know Penny, you need to get to know her. She's phenomenal. You need to ask her. Just sit her down. Take her to, she loves Starbucks. Take her to Starbucks and say, Get, tell me what you see for children. And then say specifically, tell me what you see for mine. And she will blow you away. She has this massive vision for what God wants to do in the lives of your children. And it's, she's walking it out. And your kids are following. It's really phenomenal. Many of your kids were on the trip. They're, they weren't the ones that were difficult. It was, the, uh, it was the 9 o'clock kids that were hard. Y'all's were wonderful. But we go on this trip. And these are some missionaries, Jeff and Sherry. They're good friends of ours. Uh, I went to school with both of those guys. 
Uh, they were here back in the spring. You may have heard them. Uh, they shared some about what they're doing. They have very unconventional um, missionary life. They're urban missionaries. They do a lot of work in this garden, which is in downtown Lexington, uh, feeding the people in their neighborhood, uh, teaching people how to take things that are ugly and make them beautiful. They do a lot of work um, with refugees. They do a lot of work with people who are poor and marginalized. It's just that they, have the, they don't really have, there's not a box to put them in other than to say they're urban missionaries and they're effective in what they're doing. And anytime I go on a mission trip, Misty will tell you, when I come back, I'm like, let's go. Let's just go. Let's ditch it all and move somewhere. I come back from Nicaragua and I'm saying, let's move to Nicaragua. I come back from Lexington, I'm saying, let's go move to a city. We can do this. There's this part of me that likes that lane better than my lane. I, I see them and I'm like, oh, they don't have this. They don't have to do a budget and they don't have to do, they don't have to deal with the city and they don't have to worry about paying rent. They don't have all this organizational stuff that can choke out their vision and their heart for ministry. And I look at myself and think, man, there's some things I'm good at and there's some things I'm not good at. And most of the things I'm not good at fall under this organizational leadership umbrella. If you've been here for more than about three months, you've bumped into my weaknesses. I don't think through things all the way. I make policies and then I break them because I'm inconsistent. I don't communicate very well what we're doing. And then I change my mind. And you're going, I thought we were doing this and now we're doing this. We're having three services. We're not having three services and all of those things. And that's not a woe is me deal. That's just reality. And that's but and I, I see that and think, oh, it'd be so nice to be this free missionary. I could just I could just be with people and pursue vision. I, I don't know their life. I'm seeing these little bitty snippets. I'm smart enough to know I'm only seeing the best of that. But still, there's this thing in me that's drawn there. I'm looking at this is the race that's marked out for me. And I'm looking to the left and going, I kind of like their lane. A little bit. And for some of you, you're looking at my lane and going, yours is pretty good. You work four hours a week. Come on. <laughs> you don't have to make a quota. Nobody's asking you to meet a number. I wish somebody paid me to read the Bible. I mean, that's what you're saying. Like, you're looking at my lane and going, that's, I don't know what you're complaining about, son. <laughs> and so for all of us, though, we can, we, I think there's a temptation to do that. That next slide, we've talked before about abundant life, and it's this, I think, abundant life is God trying to, um, God setting us free and empowering us to live this life of rest and relationship and work under the leadership of the Spirit. That's, he's restoring us to Genesis 1 and 2. This is what God originally intended. This is what full life looks like. Read Genesis 1 and 2. That's what God has for us. And I think what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm getting you back there as much as I can this side of my return when I make all things new. That's what I want for you. I want to give you the freedom. I want to give you the power to live a life of rest and relationship and work under the leadership of the Spirit. And maybe as you look at those things, maybe not with rest, but with work and relationship, is there one of those areas where you feel tempted to look to the left or the right? Do you like somebody else's following better than you like your following? Do you like where Jesus is taking them more than you like where he's taking you? Some easy ones. Maybe you're single and you desire to be married. and You're going, hey, I, don't, I like their lane better. Maybe you desire children. You don't have them. And you're still looking and saying, I like their lane better. Maybe you're looking at someone who's doing better than you financially and you're saying, I like their lane better. Someone who's healthier than you, I like their lane better. Someone who's more fulfilled at work, I like their lane better. And maybe something else. Maybe not have... 
be in any of those categories. Those were just ones that I thought of. Are you tempted to look to the left or the right? Do you feel like you're one of the nine? There's this select group who are up on the mountain and everything's great for them. And you're down here in the mess going, what happened? Why did he leave? I feel left out. I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. Maybe I'm feeling a little rebuked even by God on some things. If that's you this morning, I just want to take some time. We've got about 15 minutes that I'm going to lead us in, in a bit of an extended prayer. So I want you to just hang with me. As we pray, if this doesn't resonate with you, then just pray for somebody else. You, you don't even have to know their name. You can just pray for the people in the congregation who this does resonate with. So you all can close your eyes. And again, I'm going to lead us through a bit of an extended prayer. And you can just track with me in your heart and pray along as things um, resonate. First thing, God, I pray that you would uh, show us, those of us who... If, we're, if we feel like, at least in some areas of our life, we're, we're the nine. We're the left behinds. It may be in work. It may be in relationships. It may be in something else. If that's you, and you're like, yeah, that's, I'm looking to the left or the right. I like somebody else's race a whole lot better than I like my race, at least in this in this circumstance, I want you, to, if you can, I want you to pray this prayer. God, I confess, that's our first step. God, I confess that I feel like I'm one of the nine that you've left behind. I know I'm on the team. I know I'm in the family. I know you love me. But for goodness sakes, I'm looking to my left, and it looks a whole, their following looks a whole lot more abundant than mine. And I confess in fill in the blank. I'm not content. Frustrated. I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I'm over it. Whatever the adjective is. So that's confession. That's step one. Second thing we're going to do is repent. If you can. If you're willing to. Change my mind. God, I'm saying that. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And I'm saying before you, I'm going to run the race that you've marked out for me. I may not like it. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to whine like a baby. I'm not going to pout. I'm not going to disengage. I'm not going to throw a tantrum. I'm going to run as well as I can. I'm agreeing with you, God, that you know best. I'm agreeing with you that the the path that you've charted for me is the path towards abundant life for me. I may not see it, but I'm trusting that you're good and you know what you're doing. So I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you, Jesus, who starts things and finishes things. I'm not going to look to the left or the right. And if you can pray that honestly, then now you have the freedom to to do this as well. Once you accept and say, "This this is the race and I'm going to run it, then you have the freedom to ask God to change your circumstances. 
We don't ask him to change our circumstances when we're pouting or when we're rebellious. It's not the right heart. The heart that says, I submit. Now I'm asking you to change things. That's the one. Paul, three times, God, will you remove this thorn in the flesh? God said no to him. And so Paul had to quit praying. I don't, if you've got that from the Lord, then you don't need to pray for your circumstances to change. If he said stop asking, then stop. But for most of us, that's not the case. For most of us, it's more like Jesus in the garden. This is what I want, but ultimately I'm going to do what you want. And so if you've on the front end said, God, I'm, I'm willing to do what you want, now you can tell him your desires. And so you can pray this prayer in your heart with a clear conscience. It's not grumbling and it's not griping and it's not complaining. It's your desire. God, I'm, I've said and I mean it. I'm going to run the race that you've marked out for me. And now I'm asking you to change the course in this area. Fill in the blank. Ultimately, I trust you. You know what's best. And if that's to stay in this lane, then that we'll, we'll, we'll keep doing that. If it's to keep moving in this direction. But my desire is that things would shift. I want to see. Fill in the blank. Again, I submit to you as my father and as my Lord. I'm just telling you my desires. And you can wrap with this. God, I pray that you would give me the grace, empower me to run well. I don't want to trip, I don't want to stumble, and I also don't want to run off course. I want to be a great follower. When you look over your shoulder, I want to be right there. And God, I pray you would even do a work in my heart that when you look over your shoulder and I'm there, I've got a smile on my face. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close with ministry. We're going to have one song for ministry. We'll have teams here up in the front, and we'll pray with you about any need at all in your life, anything that's stirring, any place where you're saying, God, I want you to get involved. We would love to pray with you about that. Some of you prayed in your chair and you did some work in your heart. And we would love to uh, just kind of agree with you about that. There's something about saying out loud what you've done in your heart. It kind of makes it more real in some, in some ways. And so we would love just to agree with you. You can just give the brief 20 or 30 second, here's what I, here's what I did. And the prayer teams will simply pray yes. They will just say amen to what you have done in your heart. So uh, you guys can stand. And uh, ministry teams, if y'all come forward, y'all can respond as you feel led. And then Bo will dismiss us after this song.